The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. I invite you, if you would, to open your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 13. Luke, chapter 13. We'll be looking this morning at verses 18 through 21. Luke writes these words. He said, therefore, that's Jesus. What is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? It's like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden. And it grew and became a tree. And the birds of the air made nests in its branches. And again, he said, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It's like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. So we're the Lord for us this morning. Let me ask you a question this morning. Have you ever been discouraged? Particularly, have you ever been discouraged in your walk with Christ? Or looked at yourself and felt really insignificant in the big picture of the kingdom of God? Have you ever felt like if you disappeared from the life of the church or from the landscape of Christianity that nobody would even notice and there would be no difference whatsoever? Have you ever looked outside of yourself and observed other people who seem to be making a big, in, big impact for the kingdom of God? You know, great teachers, great motivators, confident speakers, gifted evangelists, compared yourself to them and, and then felt insignificant? You ever look at, at our little church and you wonder, how could a, a, just a group of people like this make much of an impact for the kingdom of God? After all, comparatively speaking, we're a relatively small group of people. We're not the wealthiest in our community. You look around, we're not a room filled with social elites here in the building. We have humble resources. Compared to much larger churches and much larger organizations, what could, what could a little church like this do, really, in the big scheme of things when it comes to the kingdom of God? Have you ever thought about stuff like that? Corporately or individually? I know I have. I know it's been a temptation at various times throughout my life in ministry to look at other people and to look at other pastors, other preachers, other churches, other popular speakers and writers, and to, to feel insignificant in comparison. To feel like my gifts are humble and small in comparison. To feel like, you know, if I disappeared from the, from the landscape of the church tomorrow, really there'd be little to no notice. And in trying to lead a church and pastor a church, just wondered those same things. What can a, a group like this do, really, in the big picture? Surrounded by so much lostness, surrounded by so much darkness, what real impact can we have? When you begin to think about things like that, it's very easy to become discouraged. It's very easy to begin to feel small and insignificant. If you know anything about that or you've ever experienced that to any degree, like I have, I think we can say that we're in good company. 
because I think it's quite possibly precisely how Jesus' apostles were beginning to feel as his ministry began to move on by the time we get to chapter 13 of Luke's gospel. If you can remember for just a minute what their expectations were in Christ coming and his ministry launching, they looked at Jesus and they, in their minds and their hearts, they knew who he was. They knew he was the promised Messiah. To them, Jesus was their king. They knew exactly who he was and they knew exactly what he was coming to do. They knew he was coming to establish his kingdom. They had read their Old Testament. They had studied the prophecies. They knew that Jesus was the king who was coming to establish his kingdom. They knew he had come to stomp out sin once and for all. They knew he had come to rescue his people, Israel, from the bondage that they were in. They knew that he had come to establish his rule and his reign from Jerusalem. They knew that he had come to conquer Of course, in all of those ways, the disciples were exactly right. He had come to establish his kingdom. He had come to conquer sin. He had come to rescue his people. He just hadn't come to do that in the way that they had expected him to do it. If you remember what they were experiencing, you can sort of begin to understand what's probably happening in their hearts. They had come to faith in Christ and they had given up everything to follow him and they had launched out into ministry with him. And at the beginning, it was exciting and it was exhilarating and all these wonderful things were happening. As expected, his ministry was spectacular. It was the power of God visibly on display for the world. They went from place to place and Jesus healed sick people. He tossed out demons without even breaking a sweat. He silenced storms. He walked on water. He he fed multitudes with just a few fish and a couple of loaves of bread. He made dead people come back to life. I mean, this was the power of God on display. It was the kind of power that could finally overthrow the Romans and establish the kingdom of God here on earth. And that's precisely what the disciples were expecting to happen. And yet, as the ministry of Jesus began to unfold, God wasn't doing things according to that plan. There were all sorts of miracles, plenty of them, but the lasting impact of those miracles seemed remarkably small. No matter how many miracles Jesus did, people still found ways to, to reject him. They still weren't believing on him in any real and genuine ways in mass. Yes, there were multitudes of people that would gather and come and watch and listen, but at the end of the day, very few actually followed Christ. Most did not. And by the time we get to Luke chapter 13, at this time frame in the ministry of Christ, the king and his kingdom are not transforming the world the way that the disciples had expected. In fact, they're being rejected largely by the world. The religious leaders had rejected Jesus. We've already seen this. They'd written him off as satanic. And by and large, the crowds had followed their lead. The kingdom that they had such high hopes for in the beginning seemed to be going absolutely nowhere. Or was it? 
That's the question that Jesus comes at and answers via these two parables that he tells on this particular occasion. We may not see it on the surface because parables are intended to teach that way. They are, they are stories that are made up, intended to, speak, to teach a, a spiritual truth, but the spiritual truth isn't always obvious on the surface. Those who have, hear, who have ears to hear, hear it. Those whose hearts and minds are opened by the Spirit of God understand it. To others, they're locked out. And so Jesus here gives two parables. And he gives them, really, aimed at his disciples and his true followers, I believe, to encourage them, to help them understand the true nature of the gospel, the true nature of the growth and the progress of his kingdom. And by note, I'll just say this, this just for your own study. Jesus tells these same two parables on more than one occasion. If you look to Matthew's gospel, in Matthew chapter 13, the same two parables are told by Jesus, but it's a different time setting in a different place. So it's likely that these parables, along with many of the others that Jesus taught, were probably taught over and over by him in multiple places at multiple times. But here he shares it, I believe, to encourage his disciples to help them understand really, to sort of, sort of recalibrate their expectations of the growth and progress of his kingdom so that they wouldn't be discouraged as things continued to sort of uh, unravel, at least on the surface. So how does he do that? He gives two parables. The first is the parable of the mustard seed. It seems rather benign on the surface. What is the kingdom of God like? And what shall I compare it? It's like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. Well, that's wonderful. What in the world is that about? Jesus loved to use agricultural analogies, if you haven't noticed that already in our little journey through Luke's gospel. He used those because people understood them. They were an agrarian society, and people understood agricultural things. It's what they largely did throughout the day, and so Jesus used analogies and metaphors and similes that could simplify spiritual truth in ways that people could understand. He wasn't trying to be cryptic. He wasn't trying to be hard to understand. He was, in fact, making hard things easy. We've already seen this. He's given us a parable uh, about wheat and weeds. He's given a parable about a sower who went out to sow seed, and the seed grew up. And in Mark chapter 4, he gives another parable about wheat that's growing up. And in, in Luke chapter 13, this, various, this very chapter, we just recently looked at uh, a parable he told about a fig tree that was growing and not bearing any fruit. In Luke chapter 12, he told us a parable about a, a rich fool. And do you remember about the rich fool, what his deal was? Well, he had crops, and he'd grown all these crops, and he'd run out of space in his barns, and he's trying to figure out what to do with all this excess wealth that he has. And instead of, instead of finding out how to invest it in God's kingdom or to give it to people who need it, he figured he would build bigger barns for his crops, which is an agricultural analogy. In John's gospel, in John chapter 15, Jesus is still talking in these terms. He says to a crowd that follows, I'm the vine, you're the branches. Do you remember that? You abide in me and I in you, right? Over and over again, he uses agricultural analogies because people can understand them. And so here again in Luke 13, he's using another one, one that's different from what we've seen thus far. And he says at the outset, what is the kingdom of God like? 
Both parables in our text today, Jesus introduces with the same exact words, the same exact question. What is the kingdom of God like, and to what shall I compare it? So it's comparable in both of the parables. It's the same question. And the parables are both here meant to describe the dynamics of the kingdom of God, but they're each meant to describe it from a different perspective. The first parable, the the parable of the mustard seed, is intended to describe the dynamics of the kingdom from an external perspective, or if you could say it this way, the external dynamics of the growth of his kingdom. And the second one that he tells this parable about leaven uh, in flour is, is intended to describe the internal dynamics of the growth and progress of his kingdom. So there's both an external look at how the kingdom of God is going to advance, and then there's an internal piece to that as well. But it's all about the kingdom of God, and that's been Jesus' theme all along, hasn't it? That's what he's been talking about since the very beginning of Luke's gospel. Back in chapter 4, verse 43, we read way back then. I don't know, that's back before some of you retired when we did that in Luke 4 years ago. Um, He said to them, I must preach the good news of what? Of the kingdom of God uh, to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. What's my purpose? I've come to preach the good news of the kingdom of God. In Luke chapter 6, verse 20, we're told, he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and he said, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. In Luke chapter 9, in in verse 1, Jesus is sending out his disciples. Well, what's he sending them out to do? He's sending them out to do the very same thing he's been doing, which is to proclaim the kingdom of God. Luke chapter 11, to the Pharisees, he's he's sort of having this encounter with them, this, this hostile encounter where they're charging him with casting out demons by the power of Satan. And he says to them in the context of that conversation, if it's by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. The kingdom has come upon you. And then just previously in chapter 12, verse 31, he's talking about anxiety and worry. And he's saying to his his listeners, don't worry about food and don't be anxious about where you're going to get your clothing and how your daily needs are going to be met. You don't have to worry about all those things. Your heavenly father knows that you need all of that and he's going to provide all that for you. Instead of worrying about those things, what you should be doing is seeking his kingdom. Seek his kingdom and all these things will be added to you. Over and over and over and over again, Jesus is talking about the kingdom of God. If he's talking about it that much, we need to understand what in the world it is that he's talking about. We've defined this a few times as we've walked through Luke, that when Jesus speaks of the kingdom of God, he's speaking largely in terms of the rule and reign of Christ over the hearts of those who believed on him. That's the kingdom of God. The kingdom exists not as a, a, a physical kingdom in the first century or even today. It exists as a spiritual kingdom over the hearts and minds and lives of those who've trusted Christ as Lord and Savior. He is our King. We submit to Him as our King. We become, at the moment we receive Christ, citizens of His kingdom. It is for now an invisible kingdom. It has no land. It has no borders. It's invisible to the outward eye. But it won't always be like that. The Bible speaks of the kingdom of God in the future as 
uh, the return of Christ when he comes back as a physical earthly kingdom, what is now invisible to the human eye, what is now imperceptible to those who don't understand it, will one day be visible when Christ returns and he establishes his rule and his reign over his people. But for now, the kingdom of God, as Jesus speaks of it here, and as we understand it, and as we live in the midst of it, is a, an invisible kingdom where we, as the subjects of his kingdom, bow before our king and he rules over our hearts and our lives. That is the kingdom of God. It is a kingdom that grows every single time a human heart opens up to the gospel and believes upon Jesus, repents of sin, and entrusts his life to him. But this, the disciples did not understand the distinction between the present manifestation of the kingdom as an invisible kingdom in the hearts of men and the distinction of the future kingdom of God that was going to be a physical earthly reign. They didn't understand that there was a distinction and that there was a time gap between the two. They didn't understand yet his death and his resurrection. They didn't understand yet the establishment of the church. They didn't understand that there was this whole gap of time between when Jesus would die and when he would return and establish a physical kingdom. All of that was still sort of foreign to them. They were expecting him to establish that earthly physical kingdom now. And so Jesus is telling them this particular parable so that they can begin to put these things together so that they're not, they don't become discouraged and despondent when a physical earthly kingdom doesn't manifest immediately. Particularly as the persecution and the rejection heats up, as it's going to do, really from this point on, all the way to the cross. He does not want them to become discouraged and disillusioned. He does not want them to feel insignificant and powerless. So he tells them a parable to explain the true nature of the external dynamics of his kingdom. He says, here's what it's like. It's like a grain of mustard seed that grew and became a tree. Now, we're all familiar with mustard, but I doubt any of us have planted mustard before. You just go buy the French's little yellow thing at, you know, the grocery, and you squirt out the, the sauce and on your hot dog, and the world is all right, you know? A little chili and some mustard and a hot dog, and that's all you need. That's all you need. That's all a man needs to be happy right there. I'm just kidding. It's not all you need, but it, it certainly helps. But you understand mustard, but you're not mustard farmers, and, and mustard was a common crop in the first century at this time. And you know what it is, though. It's a hot, just a little plant that has these hot-flavored seeds that are the sauce and all kinds of things are made out of. But the emphasis here in this, par in this parable is not on the hotness of the seed, it's on the smallness of it. Among all the seeds that were planted and grown in gardens in the first century, the mustard seed was the smallest of the seeds that were planted and grown in gardens. And you can see a little picture here of how tiny a mustard seed really is. It looked like, if you saw them, just little tiny little black specks. You wouldn't think much of them. Barely one millimeter in diameter. Really, really tiny little seeds. If you saw that little tiny seed, you wouldn't think much of it. You wouldn't think anything really significant is going to come from that teeny tiny little thing. But a remarkable thing happens when you plant that in the dirt that's fertile. And you begin to fertilize it, and it gets water and all the things that it needs to grow. A plant begins to sprout up, and that plant continues to grow and blossom, and it can become something as, as high as 8 to 10 to even 12 feet tall and can spread and become this massive mound of a tree. It's pretty remarkable that something so huge can come from something so tiny 
when you think about it, really God's, the way God's made nature work is remarkable, isn't it? When you think about that, how does that work? Like, I understand the bio, like, it's not biology. I understand what is that, the, the science behind that. But it's still really, is remarkable, isn't it? That God can put life into a tiny little thing like that. And under the right conditions, it becomes something really remarkable, like that tree. Easily the, the largest garden plant of anything that was being planted in the first century. And so the mustard seed sort of had, had come to be used proverbially of anything small that, that sort of rendered a large result. And so it was a, a sort of a colloquial term that people understood and a proverb that people understood. Jesus, in fact, uses this same analogy on a different occasion. You remember how he used it there? He used it as an analogy for faith. He said, if you have faith, even like a, a little mustard seed, right, then you can do these remarkable things that faith can move mountains and so forth. But the simple point here is really obvious and really clear that, that uh, the smallest seed in the garden does what? It produces the biggest plant in the garden. The smallest little tiny seed produces the biggest thing that's in the garden. Or if we want to just principalize it a little differently, we could just simply say sometimes the biggest things come from the smallest beginnings. That's what Jesus is trying to communicate here. Just because something is tiny at the beginning doesn't mean it's going to be tiny at the end. Just because something seems insignificant in the moment at the start doesn't mean it's going to be small and insignificant in the end. Like a mustard seed. You might see that thing on the ground and not think two seconds about what it is. But it has within it the power to become a tree. So what does that have to do with the kingdom of God? Well, Jesus said the kingdom of God is like that. Well, how is the kingdom of God like that? I think there are a couple of things that he's trying to give us, some implications about this. First, the kingdom of God, Jesus is communicating, is intended to start out small and seemingly insignificant. It's intended to start out small and seemingly insignificant. Now, this is, again, the opposite of what the disciples would have expected, isn't it? They needed to understand that God's plan wasn't coming off the tracks, that God's plan was right on schedule. This little band of believers at the crucifixion really, really just seemed like an insignificant bunch. Didn't they? I mean, if you think about what was left at the crucifixion, after three years of traveling and three years of teaching and three years of doing miracles, the number of the true followers of Jesus is remarkably small. Really, really small. In fact, when the church gathers in Jerusalem right after Jesus' ascension, they only number about 120 people. Now, there were likely more believers than that that were scattered about the villages and different places where Jesus had gone. But when the church gathered initially... About 120 people after the ascension of Christ. Think about that in terms of size after three years of ministry. In terms of the size of the population around them. That little group of people was nothing. They were at best a tiny little mustard seed, right? Very tiny little group. Compared to the big world around them, they were nothing. J.C. Ryle writes this. He says, thinking of Christianity and its beginnings, he said its first founder was one who was poor in this world, ended his life by dying the death of a malefactor on a cross. The first adherents were a little company whose number probably didn't exceed a thousand when the Lord Jesus left the world. 
Its first preachers were a few fishermen and publicans who were most of them unlearned and ignorant men. Its first starting point was a despised corner of the earth called Judea, a petty little tributary province in the vast empire of Rome. Its first doctrine was eminently calculated to call forth the enmity and the hatred of the natural heart. Christ crucified was to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness. Its first movements, that is of the church, brought down on its friends persecution from all quarters. Pharisees and Sadducees, Jews and Gentiles, ignorant idolaters and self-conceited philosophers all agreed in hating and opposing Christianity. It was a sect everywhere spoken against. You talk about a mustard seed of a religion, a mustard seed of a faith. That's where the Christian church began. A tiny little group of people left to figure out what to do after their king and Messiah was gone. They were a mustard seed. But the other principle is this. It's not just that it's intended to start out small and seemingly insignificant. The other principle is this. The kingdom of God is going to slow and in steady ways grow and result in something really tremendous. That's the illustration of the mustard tree, isn't it? It takes time for the mustard seed to grow into a tree. It grows over time. By the end, it's something that's surprisingly big. This tiny little seed becomes this really significant tree. And that's exactly what Jesus is wanting them to understand is going to happen with his kingdom. It's going to start out tiny and small and insignificant. But as they go about faithfully representing him in the world, what they're going to find is his kingdom is going to experience slow and steady growth over time, and it's going to turn into something that they could never have even imagined in their wildest dreams. And since the resurrection of Jesus, that's exactly what's happened to the church, to the kingdom of God manifest on earth. And it's still going today. The the, the kingdom of God continues to grow, and it continues to flourish. If you were to flip over a few pages in your Bibles to the book of Acts, you would begin to see how this almost immediately began to happen. Those 120 took the gospel out into their city. They just represented Christ where they were, in their city, around their city, and people began to believe on the Lord Jesus. They began to repent and trust Christ. And we see in Acts chapter 2 that on one occasion... Another 3,000 people believe and are added to the church, right? The mustard seed is growing. You flip a couple pages over to Acts chapter 4, and another 5,000 people are entering the kingdom of God. And you see the, 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 the tree is growing, right? The plant is growing. You get all the way over to Acts chapter 16, verse 15, and we have opponents saying, uh, not opponents saying, but we have Luke recording in Acts chapter 16 these words. And in verse 15, so the churches were strengthened in the faith and they increased in numbers daily. Daily. That little 120 turns into 3,120 and whatever else was around. And then another 5,000. And then day after day after day after day, the kingdom of God grows. As more and more people hear the gospel and more and more people bow before the Lord Jesus Christ as their King and Messiah. Within 40 years of Jesus' resurrection, 40 years, just 40 years, the gospel has reached every metropolitan center in the Roman world. Four decades. 
Not only that, it's reached many of the little villages and the hamlets along the trade routes. By the end of the second century alone, the, the gospel has reached and the kingdom has expanded really over the entire known world. The gospel has gone everywhere. See, the tree's grown. The kingdom is growing. And for generations since, the gospel has been spread by faithful men and faithful women all across this globe. Millions of people have heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. People of every race, people of every ethnicity, people of every culture. They've heard the gospel, they've repented of their sin, they've trusted Jesus to save them, and they've entered into the kingdom of God. And the kingdom continues to grow and grow and grow from that tiny little mustard seed of a few hundred people at the very beginning. Literally millions upon millions upon millions of lives have been changed by the gospel. And the kingdom of God continues to grow. Today, right now, this moment where we sit in the world, approximately 2.4 billion people identify themselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and his church. 2.4 billion people. Christianity is the largest faith group in the world. Now, we would suspect that maybe not all of them are genuine followers of Christ. But what started as a little tiny seed it's now become billions of people. Billions. Right now, there are over 100 million members of the kingdom of God in the nation of China, a nation that hates the gospel and actively persecutes it. Over 100 million. Evil governments can't stop it. Communist dictators can't hinder it. The kingdom of God grows. In fact, just this week, it grew by a number somewhere around 25 Ethiopian Muslims, right, John? How many? Yeah. So at least 25 people heard the gospel in unreached Muslim villages in Ethiopia through John and the groups that he went with to Ethiopia this past week. 79 people who want to hear more about the kingdom of God. remarkable thing, isn't it? Jesus understood God's plan for his kingdom. It wasn't to establish an earthly power at the moment. It wasn't to overthrow the Romans by military or political force. It was to have a small, tiny little group of seemingly insignificant people begin to do very insignificant things in their little insignificant part of the world, and God was going to take that little insignificant activity of these insignificant people, and he was going to make it something that was remarkable. Can you imagine if we could uh, go, you know, if the movie Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure were real? Don't imagine that for long. I only mean to have the phone booth that could transport you through time. If you didn't see the movie, uh, don't watch it. But I had a phone booth that you could get in and it would take you anywhere in history. If you could jump in a phone booth and they would take you anywhere in history and you could get those disciples and you could transport them to today and they could see what that mustard seed kingdom of God has become, they'd be blown away, wouldn't they? Well, because they couldn't see that far down into history, all they could see what was happening right now, they were feeling discouraged and disillusioned and afraid. 
And Jesus wanted to expand their vision so that they wouldn't be. So he talks to them about a mustard seed. Well, ultimately, the last piece of that is that it'll end up blessing, being a blessing to the whole world. This last piece of that parable where Jesus talks about the birds nesting in its branches, um, we can't take this illustration too far because Jesus doesn't explain it here. Um, but we do have a couple of examples, Daniel chapter 4 and Ezekiel chapter 31, where this imagery of birds nesting in a tree sort of give us the image of, of, of things that are not part of a tree being blessed by the tree. And so the, the idea here is that the kingdom of God, though it grows silently, though it grows individually, though it grows in ways that are seemingly insignificant, it, the, the world around the growth of the kingdom of God is blessed by its growth. It leaves a lasting impact on the world, even among those who aren't a part of it. And we can certainly see that that's true, right? Still to this day, there are Christians, part of the kingdom of God, all around the world who are a blessing to the world. I think of the Christians who are part of Water Mission International, who are all over the planet, bringing fresh, drinkable water to people who don't have it otherwise. A blessing to the world. I think of organizations like Remember who are going into hard places in the world where people are being martyred for their faith and they're providing clothing and food and education to, to martyred families, to children and widows. They're blessing the people of those nations. I think of Christian ministries that are out there today, even right now, actively fighting human trafficking, a scourge on our culture. And those ministries are a blessing to the people to whom they minister. I think about Samaritan's Purse. You know, does the Operation Christmas Child, all these boxes and millions more that will go all around the world, blessing people in foreign places who may or may not know the gospel. Jesus is saying, that's what my kingdom is like. It's gonna start off small and it's gonna start off insignificant, but it's gonna grow with slow, steady pace and it's gonna become something really, really tremendous that you can't see right now. And it's gonna be something that not only blesses the people who are a part of it, but blesses the peoples of the world who are around it as well. So what are the implications of that for us? Well, I think we can at least say this. The gospel moves like that, and it moves by people who are like that. God delights in using small and insignificant people to do really remarkable things in his kingdom, doesn't he? That's how his kingdom grew from the beginning. Small and insignificant people. The disciples were nobodies. They were farmers. They were publicans. They were not learned people. They were not society's elites. They were insignificant small people who looked at themselves and probably had nothing to offer. And God used them really to do remarkable things, to take his kingdom all around the world. So the implication for you and for me is simply this. Don't underestimate how God might choose to use you. Maybe you don't feel like you have a lot of talent. Maybe you don't feel like you have a bunch of special skills. Maybe you don't feel particularly courageous to go on the mission field. Maybe you look at yourself and you think, God can't possibly use me. Listen, one person faithfully living their faith, faithfully obeying God where they're called to do it, can be a little tiny seed that God uses to grow into things that are really remarkable and tremendous. That could be you. It could be me. Maybe you heard the name William Carey. 
If you've studied missions, Christian missions at any point, you've heard of him. He's known as the father of Christian missions. He established the Baptist Mission Society in England, took the gospel to India. But he didn't start out as much. And one background that I read about him, it said this, Carrie began to speak at Baptist meetings and he became convinced that he should preach, though he was never considered a good speaker. Listen to this description, slight of stature, prematurely balding, and wearing an ill-fitting red wig. He just sounds like a guy that's going to turn the world upside down with the gospel, doesn't he? Carrie made a distinctly unimpressive personal appearance. He preached for the entire summer of 1785 at the church in Olney and did so poorly the church refused to recommend him for ordination. On one occasion, he gave, according to one here, a message, quote, as weak and crude as anything ever called a sermon. Now, Kelly, I know Kelly and I have probably thought we've delivered duds before, but nobody's ever said that to me. Pastor, your sermon was as weak and crude as anything ever called a sermon. Thank God nobody has ever said that to me. They may have thought it, they haven't said it, but they said it about William Carey, yet he persisted. The next year, the church voted reluctantly to recommend that he be ordained to preach wherever God in his providence might call him. They're thinking, I don't know where God's going to send this poor cat, but let him go wherever it is. The church appointed one of its members, a Miss Tressler, to canvass the community to raise money to buy carry a black suit to be ordained in. He was later called to be the pastor of the church in Moulton. I mean, you talk about a mustard seed of a man. And the gospel has spread throughout India still to this day because of the work of William Carey. God uses small and seemingly insignificant people as a part of the spread of his kingdom. Don't ever be discouraged about what you don't have. Just exercise what you do and see what God might do. Well, we're about out of time, so let me just give you this last bit here, this parable of the leaven. He says, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It's like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. If the mustard seed explains to us the dynamics, the external dynamics of how the kingdom is going to grow within the world, this parable, this parable of the leaven, explains to us sort of the internal dynamics of how the kingdom of God grows. You understand how leaven works, right? It's yeast. That's what we call it today. You put it in a bunch of flour, and people who know what they're doing knead it all together, and they let it sit, and what happens? A little tiny bit of yeast begins to bubble its way throughout the entire loaf of dough, and as it sits, it rises. You see the rising. It's a, a result of this fermentation process that takes place, and eventually that, that yeast permeates the entire lump of dough until it is fully permeated by the leaven, and the whole thing rises. So the emphasis here is then on the internal dynamics of the kingdom. Just as yeast works its way through a batch of dough, sort of silently and imperceptibly, the kingdom of God, in a similar way, works its way through the world. The flower is the world, the yeast is the kingdom of God, for ease of understanding the illustration here. And so the, uh, the bottom line is simply this, the kingdom of God, not only does it start small and turn into something that's remarkably large in the end, but the, the growth of that kingdom internally is a pervasive kind of a growth. It doesn't sit still, it grows internally. It spreads throughout the, the world sort of in, a, in an internal way, heart to heart, life to life, family to family, until eventually the whole world is saturated with the kingdom. 
So it's pervasive in its growth, and we saw that early in Acts. It spread from Jerusalem to Galilee to Samaria. By the time we get to Acts chapter 17, we have opponents saying of the disciples, these men have caused trouble all over the world, and now they've come here. Because that's what they've done. They've taken the gospel, and it's now permeated the landscape all across the world. But the other piece of it is like yeast, the growth is going to be largely invisible. It's not something that's going to call attention. The kingdom of God is going to work in a, in, a, in a way that is largely invisible to watching eyes. People are going to underestimate it. They're not going to see it unless they're a part of it. It's going to spread as hearts are transformed one at a time. People hear the gospel. And like leaven, it begins to transform them from the inside out. And their lives change and their behaviors change and their families change. And then they pass that gospel on to somebody else. And person to person, family to family, the gospel per- sort of permeates the world. And that's how it's going to grow internally. It grows and it spreads. Every time faithful pastors stand up and preach the word of God over and over and over and declare the gospel and people hear it and believe and are saved. The gospel grows and it spreads and it permeates the world. Every time a missionary goes out into a foreign land and takes the good news of Jesus with her, and shares it with somebody who'll listen, and they believe, and they trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. The kingdom of God grows, and it spreads, and it permeates the world. Every time a little child kneels beside their bed with with mom and dad, and prays that Christ would save them. The gospel spreads, and it grows throughout the world. Every time an average church member volunteers for a good news club, and goes into a local school, and tells them the gospel, And little kids hear it, and they believe the gospel, and they trust in Jesus. The kingdom of God continues to spread and permeate the world. Every time a Christian co-worker tells the person sitting next to them at work what it means to know Jesus and how to be saved. It grows and it spreads throughout the world. Every time a chaplain on some ship or in some battlefield goes out to soldiers and sits down with them around a campfire and talks to them about Christ, and they hear and believe. Like yeast in the bread, the gospel of the kingdom spreads. Heart to heart, person to person, family to family. This is not what the disciples were expecting. This is not what they thought. This is the kind of of movement of the kingdom that doesn't make headlines in national news. It's the kind of growth that doesn't generate alerts on your mobile phone to let you know something significant is happening. It doesn't spread by political power. It doesn't spread by military might. It doesn't spread through pop culture. It spreads through simple people telling the gospel heart to heart, family to family, and it permeates the world that way. We had an election this week, and if it didn't turn out the way you wanted it, or if it did, so what? It's not how the gospel spreads anyway. Gospel's permeating places like China and Burma, all across the world right now, everywhere. I read a statistic just recently that approximately 65,000 people per day are trusting Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior somewhere in the world. That never makes it on headline on CNN or Fox News, does it? But slowly, surely, secretly, like yeast and dough, the kingdom of God is advancing around the world. 
So what do we make of all that? Well, you understand the kingdom now, I take it. But God's kingdom usually works like that. It's usually, his work is usually accomplished secretly and quietly. Simple, faithful believers who serve the Lord in humble places, that's how it grows. Little tiny churches can live in a whole city. Little insignificant Christians can live in a whole workspace or family or neighborhood. I think a good takeaway from that is simply this. We'd all do better if we could learn to find joy in secret, simple, obscure ministry. Because that's how the gospel leavens the world. So many of us look at ourselves and we think if we're not the big splash, then we're insignificant. And if we're not capturing the attention of other people with what we're doing for Christ, that it isn't, doesn't matter. It's nonsense. It's nonsense. That's not how the kingdom of God has, has transformed the world. It's transformed the world by simple Christians in small out-of-the-way places being content to do simple, quiet, secret gospel ministry. And God takes that and he uses it to leaven the world. We need to be content serving Jesus outside the spotlight. Content to be serving Jesus wherever we are, being faithful with what he's given us. And watch and see what he does. You don't think you're significant? Oh, you're significant. The kingdom of God is spread on the backs and through the voice and hands of people just like you and just like me. People of the world look sad and says, oh, those folks are not much. Maybe even a little backwards in their thinking. Not nearly as progressive as they ought to be. Not really up with the times. That's all right. Let's just be faithful where we are. Let's just look around where God's placed us and grow where we're planted. Take whatever gifts and skills we have and tell somebody about Jesus and watch and see what God does. You never know what he'll do through you. Never do, never know what he'll do through me. Never know what he'll do in this city through this church. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, your kingdom is remarkable. It's not like any other kingdom that the world has ever known. Every other kingdom this world has known is a kingdom built on power. Kingdoms established by war and violence. Kingdoms dominated by politics and politicians. Kingdoms corrupted by money and power and positions and authority. There is no kingdom like your kingdom. But it shouldn't surprise us because there's no king like you. Lord Jesus, you're the king of kings. No earthly king even remotely compares to you. And you've established a kingdom that's unlike anything else this world has ever seen. A tiny little mustard seed that began centuries ago. A small little group of insignificant people has grown into something that's affected the lives of billions. And we are privileged to be a part of it. In fact, it's people like us that you use to expand and grow your kingdom. 
Lord, I pray for my friends who are here. I pray if anyone's been discouraged in their walk with Christ or their investment in his kingdom, feeling like they're insignificant, I pray that you'd encourage them. That you would encourage them and strengthen them and remind them just to be faithful where you've called them, to be faithful with what you've given them. Not to compare with other people and be discouraged, but just to, just to serve you where they are and to watch and see how you take the little mustard seed and grow it into something significant and cause your kingdom to advance through them. Lord, we want that to be the reality of our church and our city as well. We pray that years down the road, we'd be able to look back on the life of our church and we'd be able to see how West Ashley and the greater Charleston area is different because this church has been a part of your leaven, the leaven of your kingdom in the city. We need your Holy Spirit to help us with these things, Lord. To empower us, to encourage us, to establish us in the work that you've given us. And Lord, if there's someone here who doesn't know you as their Lord and Savior, they've been thinking about the gospel, hearing about the gospel, but they've never bowed their knee before you as king and become subjects of your kingdom. I pray that today would be the day that they would do that. That you would open their hearts and their minds and draw them to yourself. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.